this year. And Pastor Cindy's informed us that the first step is the lights. So uh, eventually, yes, we can clap for that. <laughs> Woo! Man, these things were like on the space shuttle in the 60s. I mean, they are, they are awful. So uh, they will turn back on. You'll just start to see one flicker in about six to eight minutes. But until that time, why don't you turn your Bibles this morning to, uh, where are we going? Hebrews chapter 11, if you will. You say, oh, we're still in the faith series. Yes, yes, we are. There's been two weeks that we've sort of taken a break here with an emphasis on prayer two weeks ago. And then last week we had our, our wonderful missionary here who did a tremendous job of bringing the Word of God to us. But we're going we're gonna to wrap up here with two final messages, myself this week and Pastor Cindy next week, uh, before we move on. One of the fun parts about reading the Word of God, not necessarily Hebrews, because uh, we're not really quite sure who wrote Hebrews. Uh, it has is, it is sometimes been attributed to the Apostle Paul, but we're not quite sure who wrote that book because it doesn't look like the rest of his writing Uh, but one of the neat things about the apostle paul in the new testament that we're going to sort of apply his method today is this paul if you've ever read like romans and galatians and some of these other books he likes to begin to make an argument and then he likes to suppose that he has an opponent that he's fighting against have you ever noticed this when you read the scripture he he starts arguing the other people's point for just a moment uh, before refuting it We're going to try to use that method today as we dive into Hebrews chapter 11 because we're dealing with a rather controversial topic. We're going to try to anticipate our opponent's message and then meet it with our own. Today in our second to last sermon in the series on faith, we want to talk about being heavenly minded for earthly good. I know you've often heard they're too heavenly minded to be any earthly good, but we want to be heavenly minded for earthly good. We believe that to give our lives to God in view of eternal reward is at the same time prudent and selfless. But we do have opponents in this thinking. We have opponents who believe for us to put our faith in God, to trust that there's eternal reward in heaven, and to live our lives as, as such is both foolish and selfish. Two bestsellers of the past several years have been Sam Harris's The End of Faith and Richard Dawkins' book The God Delusion, two of the bestsellers in the world. Harris argues that belief in a revelatory system, a system of religion where God reveals himself with an eye towards an eternal reward, he believes brings more evil to the world than good. Did you know there were people thinking this? That to to envision heaven and to live as if there's a heaven brings more evil than there's, than there's good. And millions of his readers agree. The people who would say that God has revealed truth by spiritual contact and holy writings, in their minds, do more damage than good. And he says that outside of the framework of religion, most of the people in the scripture would simply be considered insane. I mean, have you ever heard somebody do something insane and said, God told me to? The entire scripture is full of God told me to's. We just trust the people that said God told me to. Richard Dawkins, who wrote The God Delusion, has helped to spearhead the atheist bus campaign. Have you heard of this? It features slogans like what's up on the screen. There probably is no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy your life. That's where the atheists are about about the idea that there's a God and there's a heaven and there's some sort of eternal reward that we're after. They have a lot of slogans like this 
that they're putting on buses all over England. Anarchist Emma Goldman proclaims, and I quote, Consciously or unconsciously, most atheists see in God and devils, heaven and hell, reward and punishment, the whip to lash people into obedience, meekness, and contentment. And perhaps most striking is George Orwell's book, Animal Farm, in which the animals are made to endure harsh treatment and strictest obedience in light of the fact that one day they'll all get to go to Sugar Candy Mountain, where everything will be bliss and sugar cane will be falling from the sky. So in essence, when I tell you today to live heavenly-minded so that you can do earthly good, our opponents argue that I'm using that to control you. I'm using that to make you weak and content in a world where you need to be strong and driven. That I'm imposing upon you worry and strife where you could be simply enjoying your life. And that your belief in heaven ultimately can be dangerous to society. That's where our opponents are at. And finally, we're all insane. That's what they believe. Well, I'd like us to open to Hebrews chapter 11 and look to the source of our insanity this morning and see what the biblical writer has to say about our belief in heaven, reward, and even punishment to see if we can get to the heart of these issues. We're going to start in verse 13. Prior to verse 13, the writer of Hebrews has talked about giants in the faith. We've talked about Enoch and Abel, and especially here, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And referring to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in verse 13, the writer of Hebrews says this, All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on the earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they'd been thinking of the country they'd left, well, they would have had the opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. And therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has, he has prepared a city for them. So, speaking of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the, the, the patriarchs of the faith, the author readily admits that they lived with the belief that they never saw fulfilled. They didn't see it happen. They lived with the belief in God that they never saw fulfilled. They didn't see it happen, yet they served God with all their heart anyways. Atheist bus campaign. That, they would just say, that's insane. Why would you do that? You, you, have no, you have no reason to believe in their minds that the promise will be fulfilled. This seems a lot like our belief in heaven or, or the return of Christ. We believe God has and will do what he says, but we don't have repeatable scientific data to suggest that he will. We, 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 we cannot get on the playing field with scientific data to ensure that there's a heaven to ensure that there will be the return of Christ. Yet we position our lives in a way to say, yes, there is. Yes, there is. Just like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob put their lives in a belief that they never even saw when they had died. What was the belief? They believed that their descendants would form a great nation, 
that their names would be renowned through history. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would become world famous. That they would be the people through whom God would bless the world. That the worship of the one God, Yahweh, would come through them. And that the land of Canaan or Palestine or Israel, whatever name it might have gone by, would eventually be for their descendants. That's what they believed. And they lived their lives in this weird obedience to this God and His crazy desires. They, they did the very things that our opponents would say are insane. And why did they do it, says Hebrews? They did it because they figured God was good for His promises and would reward them in heaven. That's why they did it. Stupid writer of Hebrews. Why would he bring this up? Doesn't he seem to be making our opponents' argument for them? In essence, he's going, mm-hmm. The atheists go, you don't see the promise. You, you don't see the end of the game here, but uh, you believe anyways. Pretty stupid. And the writer of Hebrews goes, yeah, they didn't see the promise, but they believed anyways. He's making our opponents' argument. They never saw the promise of God that directed their lives in these weird ways. They were so heavenly-minded, apparently, that they lived a vagabond life in a country not their own. They lived in tents. They never settled down. They followed the rules that average people don't have to follow. They cut off their foreskins for a promise they would never see. And we're supposed to be impressed by being surrounded by so great a cloud of lunatics. This is sarcasm, by the way. If you are so full of non-guile that you don't know what sarcasm is, I apologize. I mean, how is this supposed to bolster our faith unless the promises came true? You'll become a great nation. Okay, that happened. Not only that, but the, but the Jewish people, the Israel, Israeli people, the Hebrew people, can you think of a more enduring people group in the history of the world who has spread to more nations holding on to their religion of the one God than, than the Israelite people. A great nation. Uh, you'll receive the land of Canaan. That happened. And it happened again. It happened way back then in, in 1300 B.C., Hundreds of years after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Oh, and then it happened again in 48 of the, ninth, or the 20th century. Uh, that their name would be great. Anybody here not sing Father Abraham at one point in their lifetime? I did it last night. 20-month-old loves Father Abraham. I was tired by the end. 42 times later. And that he would be the father of our faith. That his descendants moved throughout the world would spearhead God's blessing of redemption to the nations. Was it not the Jews who spearheaded the effort? I mean, it all came true. That's why it's worth putting our faith in. Because God has promises and he fulfills those promises. Abraham never saw the promise fulfilled. Yet Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob staked their whole lives on the certainty of God's promise. And they never saw that promise fulfilled while they lived. It never happened. Yet it says in verse 21, when Jacob was leaning on his staff at the end of his life, 
He's blessing his sons and the sons of Joseph. And how does he bless them in chapter fi- or chapter 49 and 50 of Genesis? All about the promises of God for them. And when Joseph was dying, his son, he says, don't leave my bones in Egypt. Take them to the Holy Land when we get there. They weren't going to get there for 400 years. They took his bones. Because he believed the promise of God. These promises came true. In fact, Hebrews 11 is based on the assumption that while these people who staked everything in their faith in God did not see the object of their faith, we have. We've seen God's promises over and over and over and over again. And verse 13b, if you will, says that they did not receive the things promised. They only welcomed them from a distance. Welcomed them from a distance. Well, you know what? We do as well. Anybody been to heaven yet? Don't raise your hand. We look forward toward our ultimate goal in heaven because we see the faithfulness of God down through the ages displayed. But think about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They didn't have some long history of God to go, oh, God's good for his promises. Hmm. They didn't have the Bible to read. They didn't have the saints who had gone before. They didn't have this great cloud of witnesses that, we're, that as Pastor Cindy will mention next week in chapter 12. They didn't have the long history. So why did they have faith in the promise? Why did they have faith in God? Why would they believe that God was who He says He was? Because they encountered Him. Because they came to a place where they met with God on a spiritual level, on a spiritual plane. That's, this is where our opponents would call us insane. They like to say we're crazy. You feel God, you talk to God, you hear God, you're crazy. But this is, this is where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were in hearing and talking and even seeing God. They put their lives on the line because they'd encountered Him. They changed every part of who they would have been because they encountered God. On a spiritual level. You know why our opponents cause us crazy when we appeal to our spiritual sensitivity? Because they cannot combat it. They cannot combat spiritual and faith. There's nothing to say that your experience isn't true. They can't do it. There's no way to scientifically disprove your spiritual experience. Not only that, they cannot disprove God. Did you notice the bus? There probably isn't a God. Even the atheists are given ground. There probably isn't a God? Oh, thanks for the surety there, Mr. Dawkins. There probably... They can't disprove God. They cannot disprove heaven. And they certainly cannot disprove an individual's spiritual experiences. So they call us crazy in order to dismiss us. What is calling somebody crazy? It's dismissing them. Here's the great thing about this, though. They cannot disprove our spiritual experience, but we can punch holes in their logic. That's the great thing. I mean, in essence, in essence we are in such, such a better position than our opponents because they can't scientifically come into our spiritual experience and say, oh, that is not true scientifically. That's just not happening. 
But we could look at their logic and go, you guys are messed up. Your logic stinks. Isn't it illogical to deny God in eternity when every ancient culture in the history of the world has a conception of God in eternity? That is so statistically and anthropologically insupportable that it can only point to an innate creator's hardwiring. Isn't it illogical to deny God in eternity when the ideas of skepticism and secular humanism have been around for a measly 350 years of the human experience? But belief in God in eternity has been around as long as there's been people. And that skepticism and secular humanism was based in Europe's anger at the church and God for religious wars surrounding the Reformation. It's, an, it's, a, it's a theory based in anger. They're mad at the church. There must not be a God. Have you ever met a happy atheist? They're angry, bitter people. It's a bitter philosophy. It's angry. Atheists are mad at God, so they decided He did not exist. Think about that. They are angry at God, so they decide He doesn't exist. You'll never read a nice atheist. They're always angry, and their whole philosophy started in anger at the church. Was the church wrong to be killing each other during the Reformation? You bet. Is that any reason to believe there is no God? No. People are messed up. And isn't it illogical to call 90% of the world crazy for believing in the spiritual? Just because one cannot use scientific method to measure spiritual experiences. Our opponents are illogical. We are not. We have a mix of the spiritual and reason that is healthy. In essence, the atheist cannot disprove my faith because science cannot measure the spiritual, but I certainly can punch holes in the logic of the atheist, for he dismisses entire swaths of the human experience as an appropriate measure of truth. Never, ever let someone, some angry someone, deny you of your right to believe in God. God has proven himself faithful, and he has placed it in your heart and in the heart of man to seek him and to ask the question, God, if I serve you, will you bless me? Did you read chapter 6 of Hebrews 11? It is impossible to please God without faith. Is it not? Chapter 6, or verse 6 of chapter 11? Those who want to please God must first believe that he exists, and then what? Then he rewards them. That is right. So what did the patriarchs do with this? What did Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob do with this understanding? In essence, the writer is telling us that people who live like the world has nothing for them and the ones who are seeking heaven are the smart ones. They're the wise ones. They're the ones who are living their life in the promise. People who have faith believe all that God has said and then they do it. Or they believe all that God has said, and they expect that he will do it. Even unto the detriment of all that the world holds dear. Why? Because we expect a reward in heaven that will be so much greater than some menial earthly gain. Our opponents would say that we use that message to control people. And it causes more harm than help. Really? Our message of heaven... An eternal reward 
while looking at this life and saying, this life holds nothing for you, is just a message to control people. Jesus echoed as much, did he not? He says, do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and kill, or steal. Well, they, they can't kill your treasure, but they can steal it. And then what does he say? Store up for yourself treasures in heaven. It's, it's part of the very lifeblood of belief in God. And they're saying, it's, they're saying that we're using that to control people, to which I say, who are we controlling? You are free to come and go as you please. Our opponents are fighting the ghosts of the Catholic Church from 1510, and they call us illogical. If the church has any power, it is derived from the consent of those who choose to belong to it. Not for us to control you. Are there pastors and priests out there looking to control people's lives? You bet. You bet. Is that the message of God, the message of the cross, and the message of hope and freedom? Not at all. Not at all. There, there's bad eggs everywhere in all churches. Well, I, sh I shouldn't say in every church. In church leadership, there's bad eggs across the spectrum. And what in our message is so harmful? To love and serve God and to love and serve others is the ultimate form of existence. Yeah, that sounds detrimental to the human race. I, I, that really seems like it's going to cause problems. Look at Richard Dawkins' bus again. He's saying that to love and serve yourself is the ultimate form of human existence. Which idea is more harmful, ours or his? Even taking into account the religious fanaticism of today, even taking into account the religious wars around the Reformation in the 1500s, even taking into account the Crusades, what has been more dangerous and harmful to the world? The belief in God and the eternal reward in heaven? Or that? Come on, Hitler, Stalin, World War I, World War II, the most devastating wars and genocide that has ever taken place on the planet had nothing to do with God or eternal reward in heaven. In fact, they were spurred on by the belief that there was no God and was no eternal reward in heaven. So take what you can while you live and do unto others as serves you. They had to do with human selfishness based in greed, lust, and the wanton desire for power. My belief in heaven and the eternal reward is not harmful. And it's illogical to say so. Our message to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbors as ourself, our message of life and hope in Jesus' name, our message of giving yourself freely to help those in need, our message of giving your money freely and not hoarding, our message to love the unlovely, give hope to the hopeless, and bring peace to the restless, and our belief and our reward in heaven brings out the best in us, not the worst. It brings out the best in us. When we are heavenly minded, we are more earthly good. So to our opponents, they may choose to serve themselves in this finite life. We will serve the Lord and our fellow man. We believe that God has prepared a place for us that love and serve him. Look down at 14. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. And if they'd been thinking of the country they'd left, well, they would have just returned. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. 
And therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God because he has prepared a city for them. And this is why we would choose to deny ourselves in this life. This is why we would choose to live in faith and listen to the voice of God over the voice of the reason of this world. Because if God is real, that means that he made us. And if he made us, he did so with a purpose. And if we have a purpose, it's given to us by him. And it stands to reason that the fulfillment of our life is based in him. And if, that, if finding life and hope in Jesus Christ is the entry point for that purpose, and if the hope of heaven is the sustainer of that purpose, then count us all in as ones who believe and long for heaven while eschewing the menial and meaningless things of the world. Heaven is so much greater, so much better, so much longer, that this life is but a vapor. The transient nature of our bodies confirm the suspicion. This earth is not our home. But we, like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, are to remember that this life is but a vapor. And God has created us with his good purpose in mind. So having our eyes fixed towards heaven does nothing but call us to unselfishness. Having our eyes fixed towards heaven does not lead us to weakly and contentedly survey the world in which we live. No, having our eyes fixed toward heaven should give us a godly kick in the rear to step out boldly to proclaim our faith, to serve those in need, to give of our wealth, to obey the word of God as aliens and strangers in this world. If heaven is real, we better stop living so contentedly in this world system. If heaven is real, we better start living the word of God as revealed in Scripture. If heaven is real, we better start sharing with people about Jesus. If heaven is real, we better start serving people with all our heart. The problem for most of us is that when we are confronted with what God demands of us in faith, we become the temporary atheists. Didn't know I was going there. You were, you were having fun battling the atheists. We become temporary atheists when confronted with the demand of God. We start living our life as if He doesn't exist and that He doesn't reward those who earnestly seek Him. When we're confronted with the desperate need to share our faith in a dying world, that's when we pretend that heaven and hell isn't real. It's real on Sundays because we're excited about getting there. But when we're confronted with the, with the idea that there are those who don't believe in Him and don't earnestly seek Him, and theirs is not an eternal reward. And they will not be with us in that eternal reward. We become a temporary atheist. When the Word of God calls us to serve others, and we decide to serve ourselves instead, like Richard Dawkins has called us to, rather than the Holy Scripture of God, we pretend like this life is all that there is. When we don't tithe or give generously of our money, God isn't real enough to take care of me and heaven isn't real enough that I shouldn't be holding on to my money in this life. I should be making my money work for me. I only get to go around this world once. Every time that we buy into the world system of greed, pleasure-seeking, lust, and pride, you and I become temporary atheists. We don't believe in heaven. We become Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and Emma Goldstone. And I mean what I'm about to say is categorically true. The biggest hindrance to the kingdom of God in this world is Christians 
who become temporary atheists and deny eternity when they are confronted with the demands of God for their life. I mean it when I say it. But there is hope. And that is the point of Hebrews chapter 11. The greatest mode of advancement of the kingdom of God is Christians who step out in faith and remain heavenly minded when they are confronted with the demands of God for their life. God is pleased with those people and he is preparing a place for us greater than we can ever imagine. And why should we believe him? Because he's fulfilled every other promise. And because he has met us in our spiritual man or woman. We have experienced his spirit. We know that he is real. Why should we doubt? Why should we doubt in the eternal reward that he has promised us? We have no reason to suspect that he won't fulfill this promise. Church, heaven awaits us. So let's get busy. Let's get going. Stop living as a temporary atheist. Any time that we buy into, I can't share my faith, temporary atheism, heaven and hell might not be real. I'm not going to share with them. Every time that we choose not to serve our fellow human beings, to pursue something that is selfish in our own ends, heaven must not be real. I've got to get all the good times in now. Every time that we hoard our money instead of giving it generously to those who are in need or the work of God, i got to hold on to my money. I only get to do this once. Solomon was rich, filthy rich. He had an empire, a big empire. He had wives from all over the place. Chances are, a number of them were pretty. But he forsook the Lord towards the end of his life. And what did he write to us in the book of Ecclesiastes? Meaningless. Meaningless. This all is meaningless. Vanity. Vanity. This all is vanity. It's in there for a reason, folks. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob didn't get to the end of their life despairing. They didn't get to the end of their life and go, what was all that for? No, they got to the end of their life and leaned on their staff and said, the promises of God are true, they're coming to you. That is where my hope is. And Solomon and all his riches and all his splendor and all his pleasure-seeking went, this whole thing was meaningless. We have an opportunity to live heavenly-minded, to live as if the demands of God for our life are ultimately for our good. We have an opportunity to say with this great cloud of witnesses, I'm in. I'm in. I will live as an alien and a stranger to seek heaven and to seek what you have for me, God. That is the call of faith. Let us pray. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would do your work right now.
of both conviction and encouragement. That, Lord, you would...